Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you again. It's a beautiful day, and I trust that you've just really sensed the closeness of the Holy Spirit walking with you this past week. Uh, Today we're going to continue our journey into Acts 3 and 4. And as I look at your bulletin and as was announced, you know, you're going, you're reading through the Torah and you're going through the book of Acts. And I'm excited for you as a church that you're reading God's word together and planting it within your hearts. We can never go wrong with God's word. Never. It's our plumb line for life. And uh, we just, we need it in our lives. I think of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When I was in Bible school, one of my professors would ask us this question, which he said we should write at the top of every page in the Bible. I never did that. I did write it in my Bible. But he would say this, If you ask this question, how will you now live your life in light of what you've just read? How will you live your life in light of what you've just read? God's word is meant to transform us, to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. God's word changes our lives to the renewing of our minds. And God's word has to go into us before it can come out of us. And as we look at Acts 3 to 4.35 today... We're going to see the power of the Holy Spirit work in amazing ways, in ways that he still works today. We see the power of God's word bring conviction to people's hearts that ultimately leads to salvation. We see the apostles' absolute confidence in Jesus as the only way to salvation. And we see how when crunch time comes, that they come together as one and lean into God through prayer for strength, so that they can continue to walk faithfully and to do so with boldness. And Acts 3 begins with a stunning miracle. A man who has been crippled from birth walks. And it wasn't, this man probably had no intention of walking that day. He was just, he'd been crippled for over 40 years and he was just looking for money to meet his daily needs. But God... I want to read from Acts 3, 1 to 10, and I'm reading out of the NIV. But it says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. He was just a little bit excited. 
When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I see Peter and John, it's like they were, they were very aware of what God wanted them to do. And I know that I've missed opportunities because I've failed to see what God has seen. And I didn't share the gospel because I was too busy or distracted by life. But in verse 6, Peter says, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. And what I have I give you needs to always be on my mind. What do you or I have to give away that is more important than telling someone about Jesus, the one who has forever changed our hearts and lives? You know, day after day, this man begged for for his daily sustenance. It was his way of life, year after year. And year after year, we can get comfortable with our own problems. They become part of life. That's just who we are. Whether it's disabilities, whether it's ailments, whether it's relationships. Because it's our life and we forget how God can change it. Maybe we've prayed lots and nothing has happened. And so we stop expecting God to bring hope and healing into our lives. And I realize that miracles don't always happen when we want them to. But we must never forget that God can still do miracles today. And we need to remember to ask. Because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to share a story that took place years ago in in the first church we ever pastored. And there was a lady by the name of Lizette, and she would often be pounded by migraines that would end up putting her into the hospital. And I'd shared with the congregation at one time that I'd be more than happy to come and pray with you if there's issues in your life, phone we can pray together. Let's, let's pray and seek God together for his intervention. The week before we got a phone call on a Saturday morning in between 6 and 6.30, Lizette ended up in the hospital with a pounding migraine. And as she lay in the bed there, she said she heard the Holy Spirit say this to her, Lizette, why are you here? And she realized she never even sought him for help first. She just went, straight to the hospital. And we know that doctors can, God uses doctors to bring healing into our lives. But she hadn't even asked. And she asked God to forgive her, and she said, next time I need something, I will run to you first. And so the next week rolled around, and we get a call early in the morning. Would we come and pray with them? Before I left, I I searched to get some scriptures on healing. When we got there, we found out that she'd been awake since 3 a.m. with this just pounding in her head. We didn't pray immediately, but we read a number of scriptures and we talked about them. And what I wanted was, I wanted God's word to build our faith to know that God can heal. And we probably spent 15 minutes before we ever prayed. I anointed Lizette with oil. We laid our hands on her and we prayed. After we were done praying, we talked for a few minutes and even then she was sensing that some of the pressure was lifting. 
After we left, she said she went back to sleep, and she said that in itself was a miracle because she said until they had totally dissipated, she said, I could never go to sleep in the past. But she said, I went right back to sleep, and in two to three hours, she woke up, and it was gone, totally. The next morning, she shared in church about what God had done for her. And you would almost think, you know, people might, I'm going to call. We'll call one another. Let's pray together. Let's seek God and ask him to, to help in our situations. But I, somebody would share issues that they've been going through. I said, why didn't you call? We could have at least prayed. Well, you're probably busy, and I didn't want to bother you. But maybe is, do we really believe that God wants to heal us? We need to give him a chance. And a little bit more about this story. Eleven years later, we went back to this community for a funeral. And Lizette came over to me and she said, Scott, I have never had another migraine, ever. Our God is amazing. He is our healer. He is our great physician. And I know he's done, he's worked amazing miracles through us, and just as he did with Peter and John. But we're only conduits of his power. It's never us. Peter and John quickly pointed to Jesus when this crippled man was leaping and jumping around. In Acts 3, 12 and 16, it says, when Peter saw this, the people were running towards him. He says, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us us, as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And then in verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus... This man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. The thing that amazes me with Peter, whatever is the situation, whether it's Pentecost or this, this situation right now, he never misses an opportunity to share the gospel and how God wants to work within hearts and lives. At Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. This day, another 2,000. Acts 2.47 had said that the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. But as we see in the life of Jesus, there are always some who want to kill the gospel message. They don't want it to go forward. And in Acts 4, 1 to 3, it said, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. There is much that we can learn from these apostles and what it's like to live out our faith when challenged. When they appear before the authorities, this isn't a social visit. This is a bold challenge from the authorities for them to back off. Go back home and go fishing, is basically what they would like to say. And in Acts 4, 5 through 7, it says, The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? 
They want answers. And they want the apostles to stop now. Have you ever prayed for persecution to stop? We know that the persecuted, there is a persecuted church. And it's real. Whether it's imprisonment, whether it's possible death, on the run, it's real. I probably have prayed for the per- persecution to stop. But I read a book before Christmas called The Insanity of God. And it talks about persecution in countries that really clamp down hard on the gospel. They said in the book, the primary cause of religious persecution in the world today is people surrendering their hearts and lives to Jesus. That's what causes persecution. Well, then how then should we pray for them? Hebrews 12.3 says, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. If, these peop- if people in these countries stop sharing the gospel and people no longer become followers of Christ, persecution stops. It just does. The only way the gospel is stopped is when followers of Jesus stop sharing their faith. And this was a prayer in that book from the persecuted church that we would pray for them to be faithful and obedient through their persecution and suffering. And that's a radical prayer, and it challenges me as a Canadian. The persecuted church say that they have determined in their hearts that they will not keep Jesus to themselves. And by doing that, they know that persecution is coming their way. So a couple more quotes here. It says, so if our goal is reducing persecution, the task is easily accomplished. First, just leave Jesus alone. Two, If you happen to find him, keep him to yourself. Persecution stops immediately when there is no faith and when there is no witness. The reason for persecution is that people keep finding Jesus and then they refuse to keep him to themselves. You listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and we call it the Great Commission. But it says, Jesus said, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And one more quote from that book says, True to Scripture, believers in persecution would remind us that we are equally free and equally responsible to share Jesus in every corner of the globe. The question is never, am I free to do that? Rather, the question is, will I be obedient to share? And as we see this story in Acts 3 spread into Acts 4, and the authorities are involved, they're telling Peter and John, do not speak or teach at all anymore in the name of Jesus. And yet we, probably most of us know Romans 1.16 by heart, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. There is a cost in following Jesus. And with that cost, there's risk. And for some people, even more than you and I could ever imagine. In Luke 14.27, Jesus said, And anyone who does not 
carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Those are strong words. There is risk in following Jesus. But there is a greater risk eternally if we don't follow him the way that he wants us to follow him. But Peter stands up for the gospel this day, not knowing what it might cost him. And in Acts 4, 8 through 12, he says this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and we are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, I'm sure that went over well, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It says here that Peter, filled with the Spirit, and as you look through the book of Acts, this is probably not from when the Holy Spirit was poured out at the beginning. In verse 31, we're going to see once again that the people were once again filled with the Holy Spirit. Seems that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is meant to be a common occurrence in our lives. We need to ask God, fill us. In Ephesians 4.18, it says, Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And a prayer of mine quite often is in John 3.30, where John the Baptist is talking to his disciples about Jesus coming, and all of a sudden, John's not maybe quite as popular as he once was. But John says to his men, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And that's a good prayer for us to have. I've heard this said, that it's not how much of the Holy Spirit we have, because the Holy Spirit is a person. He's in us. But how much of us do we give to the Holy Spirit? Do we turn over our lives to him completely? To be filled with the Holy Spirit as Peter was here and as they are at the end of the chapter is never meant to be just a one-time experience, but a regular pattern of life. We read in Acts eleven twenty four that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And my commentary in the ESV says, this does not describe a single experience, but a general characteristic of Barnabas' life. In Acts 6, they're going to choose seven men to help solve some church issues. But there's a key qualifier. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. To be full of the Holy Spirit is an intentional choice, an intentional prayer to hand over more of our lives to God than what we have Maybe in the past, may he increase, may I decrease. And when Peter, filled with the Spirit, spoke up that day, he didn't know what might even happen to him. But he knew that his life was in God's hands, and he knew that God's message was in his heart. And therefore, he had nothing to fear. He felt 
He had probably that peace that passes all understanding. It just says, I'm going for it. I'm trusting God. He chose to be obedient. And who knows that maybe down the road if some of these men didn't give their lives to Christ because of John and Peter's boldness that day to stand up for what they believe in. Peter continues preaching to those who arrested him. He says that this Jesus whom you crucified, he is the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. In Isaiah 28, 16, it says this about the cornerstone. It says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious stone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts or believes will never be dismayed. This cornerstone was crucial to architecture in biblical times. The one book I read, it said it was the largest and strongest stone, and it was basically the plumb line for the rest of the building. It was the stone, just as Jesus is the cornerstone. In Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, it says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. There is no other way to salvation. Jesus is the cornerstone of our salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Peter emphasizes that when he says in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. And with Peter's and John's boldness and their passion and their conviction, little wonder that these scholarly men, these are men that have probably studied their scriptures since they've been young adults. And they were astonished at Peter and John. Because in verse 13 they say, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. And I think, what a testimony. But it also tells me something else, that people, whether they agree with us or not, they're watching our lives. They're watching how we live. And you and I can have that same confidence and assurance that comes from spending time in God's presence. There's no quick and simple way to maturity. It's a lifetime commitment. We must seek first the kingdom of God. We must set our hearts and minds on things above so that we can walk with the mind of Christ in all that we do. And as the leaders marvel at the courage of Peter and John, they still have one goal in mind, and that is, how do we stop them? And in 14 to 18, it says this, But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. 
Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called the men again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What do you do? And then you look at Peter and John in verses 19 to 20. They don't speak with anger in their voices or indignation for who these people are, but they challenge them to do the right thing. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves what is right in God's sight, to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. These are men who would claim to be godly. And he's challenging them, you need to be doing what God would want you to do. He's challenging them to walk in obedience. And they don't know what to do with these guys, but they're released until next time. This miraculous healing of this man who has crippled his whole life has created an opportunity for the gospel to be presented, and over 2,000, 2,000 more are saved. And I want to be careful and say that we don't just seek after miracles, because I know some people are miracle crazy. They, they just want to see miracles to where it becomes more important than God's kingdom message, to tell others about what Jesus Christ did for them, how he has redeemed us from our sins so that we can come to a place of repentance. Because the greatest miracle of all, I believe, is our salvation, that we become children of God, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be in a right relationship with God. Jesus took our place so that we could become God's children. I love Romans 8, 16, and 17 that says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And that just blows me away every time I read that, that we're children of God and co-heirs with Christ. But I also want us to ask God for miracles because God can use them to build his kingdom as seen with Peter and John. We've seen amazing things take place in our own lives, in our own family, beginning with how God changed our lives, made us his children with an eternal hope and joy. He's done miracles that have cemented our trust in him, knowing that in him all things are possible. Our oldest daughter was about 16, 17 at the time. She had scoliosis, the curvature of the spine. It wasn't severe, but one night we were at a meeting, and she said, I'm going to go up for prayer. And she said as she walked to the front, she said, I could hear and feel a click in my back. She went up, continued for prayer. She got home that night, and Shannon checked her spine, and it was straight. Amazing. Probably one of the bigger miracles in our lives was our youngest son, Jordan. I think it was February of 1992, just a few months old, and he got a severe chest infection that hit him really hard. You'd watch his little chest and just sucking in for all the air that he could get. 
And we prayed, and he had maybe seemed to get a little bit better, but then he would relapse. He was on Ventolin and a nebulizer three times a day, and he'd get better for a while, but then he would sort of relapse again. Well, now at the end of June, he still wasn't well. But we had a special meeting coming up at the end of July, and I said to Shannon, I really believe that God's going to heal him there. Why there? Why wait the month when we could, it could just happen? Now, I don't know. The night before we went to that July meeting, Jordan woke up 13 times in the night crying because of this illness. And we could have felt down and thought, forget it. Like, let's just stay home. But we went in faith. I just had that sense that God was going to heal him. At the end of the meeting, Jordan was sleeping on Shannon's lap. He was wrapped up in a blanket, and she took him up for prayer. And as this man prayed for Jordan, Shannon said she could feel his little body get very, very warm, and the heat was coming from him into her. That night, he went home, and he slept for 13 hours straight. And when he woke up, he was totally and completely healed. Totally. Our God is amazing. He's got a timetable for things that sometimes, well, why not? Why not earlier? I don't know. But I look at Peter and John and I think, I look at how this chapter ends. In my Bible, it says the believer's prayer in 23 to 31. I really believe that this is where they found their strength as they came together and as they sought the heart of God to know what God wanted to do. And you know, so often we can allow, we maybe don't go to prayer or we forget that God can still heal or circumstances come up and can throw things into a mess like, is, like the last two years. Has that been a mess with COVID? It seems like now it's maybe a bit in the rearview mirror, which I'm thankful for. But I saw so many things happen within the church in that two years that, that were sad in many ways, where sides were taken and divisions were and people quit coming to church for this, that, or whatever reason. But I would ask this question, did COVID take God by surprise? I don't think so. Just as the persecution in, the, in, the, in Acts did not take God by surprise either. He's there in the midst of it. And I know that when we went into it, I really felt like COVID, and nobody knew how long it was going to be, but I thought this is an opportunity for the church to shine. Because while many people were trapped in fear and anxiety, we have the peace of God. We have Jesus who lives. He's, he's made us new. And yet, I saw so many people. It seems like God was not a part of it. And they just went and they did their own things. They became angry, some of them. Said hurtful things. And yet I look at a passage like this in Philippians 2, 3 through 5, because we always need to look at Jesus. And it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider yourselves, consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We were interim pastoring for seven months during this time, and there was, I, was, I came in as a senior pastor. There was two associate pastors. We all had different opinions on what was happening with vaccinations and everything. But you know what? We're best of friends because we had grace towards one another. We just said, you know what? I love you, and we're going to walk through this together. And that's what we did. And yet I saw other people almost become nasty at times. But what would happen if the church had come together and said, really prayed and said, Lord, what do you want us to do as we go into this? We want to focus on you. We want to focus on the gospel message, on hope, peace, salvation, love, the resurrection, eternity, joy, kindness, compassion, faith in God and his plans. You know, sometimes we're so worried about our rights, and yet we look at the persecuted church that I read some from that book. You look at the persecuted church here, what rights do they have? And I'm not saying rights aren't important, okay? But their rights in the persecuted church are trampled on. And yet they share their faith in obedience to God. One person shared this quote with me, and I don't know who said it. They said, freedom is important. But I'm concerned that too many people have allowed the freedom of worship to become the worship of freedom. Which then becomes an idol. And this is where we need to look back at Jesus once again. And think of what he freely did for us. In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant of being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our cornerstone. It's on him that we build our lives. He's our role model. He came to serve, not to be served. And I love what Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What happened to the disciples and what's going to happen to the disciples isn't fair. But they never complained. But over and over, they just presented Jesus. They walked in his power. Miracles took place. And the church grew by the thousands. And in this prayer meeting that they they go into here, it seems like their complete focus is on God and not what others might do. It didn't matter who or what they were up against. They knew the cost of following Jesus was going to get more severe probably. And it would to where people would even die for their faith, be imprisoned, 
But in verses 29 to 31, it says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe this prayer meeting is meant to encourage us to be an example for us to follow, regardless of our circumstances, and watch God grow his church. I just finished reading a book this morning. There was a couple quotes here that that got my attention. It says, When our problems loom large in our vision, then God can appear small and insignificant. That's why we need to keep our eyes on him so that he's never viewed as small. Then he closes with a song that one lady had written to him. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God can and will continue to grow his church today. I believe that the church is made to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive. But I believe that in doing that, we need to keep our message narrow, and it needs to be on Jesus and what he can do. And we need to make sure that our vision of him doesn't get diminished because we don't know how much longer we maybe have the freedom that we do to be able to share our faith with others. In verses 32 and 33, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. When Jesus is our focus, we realize that everything we have comes from him. Our breath, our lives, our abilities, our possessions, our strength to endure. When we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we want to serve him. We want to serve the family of God, and we want to serve those who need to know Christ. And with his love in our hearts, we can willingly hold our possessions in an open hand, saying, Lord, use us, use whatever we have to build your kingdom. And when we live like this, we are a testimony to others in the family of God so that they can be inspired to do the same thing. We are Jesus' ambassadors to this world, and we're to live countercultural to a me-first world. God gives us opportunities to show people how he provides for people who trust him and to show his love to people who need to experience his love, his grace, and his salvation. May we represent Jesus well as we gather together to pray, as we spend time in his word, and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I close with this passage of scripture from Galatians 6.14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Lord, that you are still a God who uses your people in powerful and amazing ways. Lord, we want to be empowered by you to have the boldness to quote as the apostles did to, to share your word, to pray for people, to pray for miracles that don't make sense. But Lord, we know that if you have asked us, we need to walk in obedience. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you because you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us to not let the circumstances of this world distract us from who you are to where we lose our sight of who and what you can do because you are a mighty and amazing God. You spoke this world into existence. We breathe because you give us breath. And Lord, we want to have our full and complete confidence in you. So Lord, use us. Help us to see people through your eyes. Help us to see situations when they arise for us to share. Lord, may you be glorified in what you want us to do. We're yours. Use us, Lord, to build your kingdom, not our own. Lord, help us to love one another. Because Jesus said, by our love for one another, the world will know whose we are. So God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here freely, to worship you, to hear from you. We give you thanks and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.